15, the book of Acts, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. Acts chapter 15, this will be page 923 if you're using the Bibles here at the church. And um, we looked at the first half of chapter 15 last week, so these two sections do kind of go together. If you weren't able to be here, you might uh, take time to listen to that message later today. But just to kind of remind you of what we saw last week in the first half of this chapter, uh, Satan, in this chapter, Satan attacks the church with false teachers. And these false teachers are saying that Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians. All right, so these false teachers, they came to the church in Antioch. And we looked at the church in Antioch. We first saw them in chapter 11 some weeks ago. The church in Antioch was a very diverse uh, church, the first church made up of Jews and Gentiles. So you can imagine that this teaching that these Gentiles, they need to uh, do certain things like be circumcised, follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be saved, that would cause problems in a church like this. Uh, and it does. Uh, we, we saw last week how the, the Jewish Christians, they won't even eat with the Gentile Christians anymore. Uh, the church and its witness and all sorts of personal relationships, you know, we don't even know. We're not, we're not even seeing those. They're in danger. Uh, but thankfully, some of the, the, the church sends some of their leaders to this council in Jerusalem. That's sort of at the center of chapter 15 here. And so they go to Jerusalem to talk through this false teaching. And we saw last week how Peter, the apostle Peter, gets up and he defends the gospel. Uh, he argues that a person is saved by grace alone. He says that in verse 11 of chapter 15. That is the entry requirement into the kingdom. And then in verse uh, 12, the assembly falls silent after Peter's speech. They, they fall silent and they listen. And Paul and Barnabas then, they kind of tell all about this first mission trip they've just gotten back from and how God is clearly approving of these new Gentile Christians because he sent all these miracles to affirm that he approves of their entrance into his people. And so then we come to our text for today, verses 13 to 25. So we'll look at that uh, today, verses 13 to 25 of chapter 15. But before we look at those, let's begin with prayer. Oh, Lord God, whoever your people are coming from this morning, uh, whoever may be visiting with us today, Lord, help us all to sit in peace for a few moments this morning and listen to your word. Help your people to be careful listeners who pay attention. Help me to speak clearly and truthfully and show us how to love the church better. The church is your church. It is the bride of Jesus. It's worth working hard for and sacrificing for. Show us this in your word. And apply it to our lives by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so beginning at verse 13 here. After they finished speaking, 
that's Paul and Barnabas when you're speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now Simeon is the Jewish name for Peter, so he's talking about Peter, Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and to all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. All right, so uh, in her book, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church, uh, Megan Hill describes the testimony of a man named Jim. Jim became a believer in prison, and then he came to uh, her church when he was released, and, and over time he became an important part of this church. And Megan describes him looking out at the congregation uh, when he became a member and saying with delight, I've never had a people before. And after he said that, uh, Megan looks around the room and she recognizes that these people are not much to get excited about. She writes, on the whole, we weren't powerful, rich, intelligent, beautiful, or even especially godly. 
We were an unassuming collection of graduate students and grandmothers, musicians and mechanics, infants and immigrants. We were just ordinary people who would have to get up on Monday morning and do the next thing. Jim's delight over belonging with us almost seemed naive. But Jim wasn't naive. He was loving what God loves. And she goes on in her book to walk through nine different names that the Lord gives his church uh, as a way of teaching us to see the church through God's eyes so that we can learn to love the church the way God loves it. And I open this way because I think what we see in Acts 15 is people who love the church. They are working hard to protect its truth and its unity. And we want to learn from them. How does this text teach us to love the church? Well, first, loving the church looks like a commitment to church government. A commitment to church government. I know for some of you this may not be a very popular idea. Uh, the governing structure of a church may seem sort of like this stuffy academic topic to some of you or you know to others it may seem even like an oppressive misogynistic topic but this story from the life of the early church pushes us to see its importance this church is disintegrating is falling apart the, the gospel of grace is being obscured distorted people are not eating together the whole thing is about to split down ethnic lines. What kind of witness would this be to the world? Think of the broken friendships. This is not good. If this church does not have a functional governmental structure by which it can appeal for help and then come to an agreement through representatives at a council that all the churches then submit to, Everything falls apart. Maybe you've seen good gospel preaching churches that did not have good church government in place. That is a precarious place to be. Loving the church means caring about church government. Now, I'm not intending to prove uh, all the nuts and bolts of Presbyterianism here to you guys today. Uh, but I think it's helpful for us to just notice a few things that we see about church government here in the way that these Christians interact and make decisions. So, first, who makes the decisions here? Who makes them, right? The elders and the apostles. Now, we don't have apostles anymore, but it's interesting to notice that none of the apostles act like apostles during the council. They just act like elders, they don't pull rank over the elders. Uh, no apostle gets up and says, you know, look, the Lord has given me a special revelation, so I can just save you guys all the huffing and puffing and debating and just let you know what you should do. God could have worked that way, but he doesn't. And this is important because it allows us to say what's going on here is, is normative. It, it, it teaches us how our churches should continue to make decisions. We don't have apostles, but we do have elders. 
Uh, and there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament about the concept of elders who can qualify as an elder, what they do, the critical importance of, of carefully choosing your elders. That church government, like any power structure, can be corrupted, it can be misused. Congregations need to be very careful about who they nominate and elect to serve as elders. But continuing with what we see here in Acts 15, how does this council make their decision? We saw uh, last week in verse 6, there was much debate. And then uh, the writer of Acts, he gives us three different speeches. There are probably many speeches, but he, uh, these are sort of the key ones that move the debate along. And, and, and what are these speeches doing? How do they come to their conclusion? There's no new revelation from God, right? Just like in our churches. They're, they're only reflecting on and interpreting previous words and actions of God. Uh, so, right, so for, for Peter, we saw last week, he reflects on the words God had uh, said to him, right, in the past that led him to witness to these Gentiles. And then, of course, the things that happened uh, in the lives of those Gentiles. And then the same with Paul and Barnabas in verse 22. They're reflecting on these past actions. And then we come to James in verse 13, and he reflects on the Old Testament words of God. So, so Peter and Paul and Barnabas, right, from our context, they're reflecting on what will become the New Testament. And then James turns to the Old Testament. And he says, what these brothers have described is consistent with what God said in the Old Testament, he quotes from the prophet Amos that God will rebuild the tent of David. Uh, of course, that the house of David had fallen long ago, right? His kingdom was gone. There's no Davidic king left. But James is reminding the church that, in fact, uh, there is a Davidic king left. This text is fulfilled in the, the, in the person of Christ, who is is resurrected and ascended to sit on David's throne forever. And Christ is rebuilding David's kingdom through the creation of a new Israel, which the prophecy goes on to describe. And it talks about this calling of this remnant from all nations. The, the Gentiles who are called by God's name will be part of this house of David. James's point is, this is happening. What God said would happen is happening right here. The Lord promised to bring Gentiles into the house of David, not Gentiles who become Jews, not Jewish proselytes, but Gentiles. And so based on Scripture, James says, we should not trouble these Gentiles. Now, he offers some caveats, and we'll look at those in a bit. But the point is here, how do they make their decisions? By reflecting on God's word. This is not a mysterious or mystical process. It, surely it's prayer-saturated, spirit-led, but it's also just a straightforward intellectual process. They debate, right? And, and yet notice what they say in their letter in verse 28. They say, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Through debate and careful examination of God's revelation, they have come to an agreement that they are able to say, 
is the will of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people feel like uh, the will of the Holy Spirit is impossible to know or sort of mysterious. Or you have to come, you have to some sort of special spiritual gift to be able to discern it. That's not the process we are given here for how to discern the direction of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Spirit works through the debate of representatives who've been recognized as gifted and appointed by their congregations. And these representatives, they come to the Spirit's will through careful scriptural interpretations. The Holy Spirit, of course, may have led God's people in different ways in the past, and certainly he could still do so. But this is the normal way we should expect to understand God's will in our lives through careful scriptural interpretation within the community of God's people. But finally, we look at how they communicate, right? How they communicate. They make a decision, and then they send a letter there, beginning in verse 23. And what's the letter like? It's concise, right? It's clear, and it's warm. They open in verse 23. The brothers to the brothers. So we're brothers, you're brothers. What does that make us? Family. We're family. This is very significant, right? This council, they could be viewed as sort of the, the Jewish establishment down there in Jerusalem by this church uh, with these Gentile Christians up in Antioch. Maybe when the letter got opened, they, their guard was up. They're like, I don't know what these guys are going to tell us to do. So how does it start? We are family right from the the get-go. Among Jews, calling someone brother, that was recognizing that you're both descended from Abraham. So to call these Gentiles brothers is recognizing that in Christ, they are children of Abraham as well. This sets the tone immediately. Remember, these are not circumcised Gentiles. They're not Jewish proselytes. They go on, and in verse 24, they they deny the authority of these false teachers, right? This is important. These guys could still be there. Uh, they identify Paul and Barnabas as their beloved, uh, which would matter to this church. This church would have honored and loved Paul and Barnabas. They, remember, they were there from the beginning, teaching them, nurturing them in the faith. And then they send these two trusted representatives, Judas and Silas, to further explain, to relate personally to these believers and spend time with them. Uh, perhaps one other thing we could say about how they communicate is that they communicate with authority. This is not a suggestion. Uh, the letter assumes obedience. Uh, if I may, uh, this is not congregationalism, where, we, uh, where connections outside of one's church are optional. You can decide if you want them, if you want to listen to them. Uh, the higher assembly has authority over the lower assembly here, the regional church in Antioch. They tell them, this is what we've decided. It's not a hierarchy either. The, the church in Antioch, they got to send their representatives to this council. They got to choose guys, send them to help make the decision. It looks like Presbyterianism to me. 
But, but what I really want you guys to see here, what matters about this, is that God, we can see, he cares about protecting his truth and protecting his people. And the primary gift he's given his, his church to do this, to defend these things, is church government. This text showcases a triumph of church government. When gifted and called church leaders submit themselves to the word of God to determine the will of the Holy Spirit, they can protect the church from savage wolves. They can nurture the love, the fellowship, and the unity of the church. Don't dismiss the value of good scriptural church government. Now, one of the ways these leaders protect the church is through these four caveats uh, that are given to the Gentile Christians. So let's turn to my second point here. And this is a, a two-point sermon, guys, just so you know, so don't get worried. Uh, so my second and my final point, loving the church means a commitment to personal sacrifice. A commitment to personal sacrifice. You know, I think the Christian church in America often forgets that Jesus told his people that to follow him means to deny yourself and to take up your cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. Some, some churches, they teach that, you know, being a Christian means becoming healthy, wealthy. Uh, even churches that avoid that false teaching, they, they can sometimes communicate to people that they're kind of there to just serve all your needs. We got you covered, all the different ministries you need. We're going to take care of you. That's sort of what can be communicated. But churches that are built this way will not survive when their unity is threatened. Because the path Jesus taught us to follow is one of self-sacrifice. That's the way he loved the church. That's the way that he calls us to love the church, too. People in other church, uh, other countries sometimes know this better than we do. Uh, the missionary we support in Turkey recently shared that one of his new evangelism contacts wrote him this question. If I know that my family will react harshly and radically if I decide to believe, what should I do? And the next day they met, and this brave man committed himself to following Jesus. Our sacrifices may look different than this man's, but we need to be brave, too, to, to meet them like this dear new brother of ours is. To be ready to sacrifice. Now, but uh, when some of you saw this list of things here that the council asked the Gentile Christians to do. You may have thought, now wait a second, didn't, didn't they just say, didn't they just affirm salvation is by grace alone? These guys don't have to do any of the circumcision thing, the whole, all those mosaic laws. I thought they just, what about these mosaic laws now that they've tacked on at the end of the letter? What's going on here? So it's important to say, first of all, they are saying something different than the circumcision party. Remember from last week, right? These false teachers from this circumcision party, what they're saying is these things need to be done in order to be saved. Right? But the council is already calling these Gentiles brothers. 
These things are not an entry requirement. They're already believers. They're being asked to do these things out of love, which is the motive behind all Christian obedience. Because we love God, we're called to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates, which are defined for us in his moral laws. Uh, God's moral laws are things that are that are true for all time. We, we see these distilled in the Ten Commandments. These are different than like the civil laws that he gave the nation of Israel uh, for a specific period of time. Uh, or the, different from you know, the ceremonial laws that he gave them, um, which enabled them to, to live in God's presence before Jesus came and made them unnecessary. But actually, that's what's kind of strange about these laws, isn't it? I mean, the prohibition against sexual immorality, that's not so strange. That's a moral law. It's commanded everywhere in Scripture. It's an area that would have been a particular struggle for these Gentiles because it's very common in that culture. It continues to be a, a struggle for Christians. But these, these other three laws are ceremonial laws. So why do they still matter? The answer is all about love for the church. The council is applying God's command that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And James actually shows us this, but it's not immediately obvious. You've got to follow me closely here. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. James suggests that the council tell the Gentiles to abstain from these four things. And then he gives the reason. In verse 21, notice the word for there at the beginning of verse 21. That's setting up the grounds for these rules, the, the basis for them. We could also translate that word because. So they should follow these rules because, he says, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He's noting the fact that the Jews had spread all throughout the Roman Empire. They've got synagogues and communities in all the major cities, many of the minor cities as well. And in every one of those synagogues, people know these Mosaic laws very well because they read it every week. So why do these Mosaic laws matter? Because those synagogues will be the first place every Christian missionary goes when they enter a new city. And if they waltz in ignoring what matters to these Jews, they will not get the chance to tell them about the Messiah, Jesus. And then further, just like in Antioch, we can expect that the norm for this stage of church history is going to be mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles, uh, unity between believers will be obscured if the Gentile believers are ignoring these things that still matter so much to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's not forget, as this letter is being written by the council, there may be Christians in Antioch that are still not eating dinner together. That's a problem. Now, the council is not saying they have to become Jews. 
In fact, these four laws, uh, well, the strangling requirement, that one is implied in the commandment not to eat blood. But these laws are listed in, in the same exact order back in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17 to 18, as four things that Gentiles who live in the middle of the Jews, who live in their lands, are supposed to do. So, actually, they're expressly saying that these Gentiles don't have to become Jews with the laws they decide to ask them to follow. And so the council offers a compromise. This is a compromise. First, for the sake of mission, to reach the Jews. And second, for the sake of unity, to build Jew-Gentile churches. And this is a compromise because these laws have been fulfilled by Christ. They don't need to follow them. Yet it's also not unbiblical for them to follow these laws. And so on the basis of the Bible's command to love your neighbor, the council asks them to sacrifice their personal freedom and follow these specific Mosaic laws. This is the same reason, by the way, that in the next chapter, Paul's going to circumcise his buddy, Timothy. It's the same reason. We call this doctrine loving the weaker brother. Paul talks about this a lot in other places. Uh, you can read Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 if you want to look at that. Uh, Paul had no problem being stubborn if something was unbiblical. We saw that last week with the false teachers. But, he was willing to bend over backwards in personal sacrifice on things that weren't unbiblical but would promote the gospel of peace. And we need to see that the reason James gives for these laws, this is truly contextual, it's, it, it mattered at that point, that time in history. For us, it, it doesn't any matter. We, 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 don't, we don't need to follow these because we're not a mixed Jew-Gentile congregation. But see, the concept, the concept is still true. If we love the church of Jesus Christ, we must be ready to sacrifice personal freedoms when it's not unbiblical for the sake of mission or for the sake of unity. Are you ready to challenge yourself on this? Personal freedom, that's... The holy grail of American culture. Every culture is going to have different places where they grind up against what God says, some more, some less. For American Christians, giving up our rights for the sake of unity with other believers, quieting our loud-mouthed inflexibility, that can be hard. We need to learn to sacrifice. What does this look like? Uh, well, on the one hand, right, there, there are things that are just differences of opinion where there's really no correct answer, but they can really affect our unity. An easy example uh, in our church. Some of our worship music is more contemporary. Some of it's more traditional. If you struggle with one or both of those styles, guess what? You have a wonderful opportunity to to engage in personal sacrifice out of love for Jesus and your church. 
God has just blessed you with a chance to look more like Jesus by rejoicing in your church's worship and singing along to songs, even if you don't like them. Take that opportunity to the Lord. The Lord will bless your willingness to sacrifice your personal desires with joy, with increased love for him and his people. On the other hand, there are things where there may actually be a right or wrong answer, but where, when it's not an essential gospel issue or a sin issue, you may need to defer or be sensitive to the believers around you. You may need to swallow your words and not need to be right all the time. These Jewish, the Jewish Christians, they, they are technically, they're free from this Mosaic law. Eventually, they need to learn that, even if they decide to keep their traditions anyway. But look at the text. It is not the priority of the early church to force them to figure that all out right away. It's a priority to protect the gospel, absolutely. But not those other things. At Covenant, we have Christians from many different backgrounds. Some people who may still be learning about Christianity. Some of you are younger Christians with a lot to learn about the Bible. Some of you are, are, have been Christians for decades. You still have a lot to learn about the Bible. Some of you may come from a different theological tradition than this church. Please, brothers and sisters, be gentle with each other. You may think to yourself, man, I could really set this person straight. But you know what? It, it might not be the right timing. You might not be the right person. You might be wrong. Uh, from the pulpit, of course, you should expect that we will teach Scripture from the theological positions of this church that we've embraced uh, as a church. But you can also expect we will do it respectfully and kindly. Our desire is to safeguard the essential truths of the gospel as well as our unity and love for one another while we all grow from wherever we are in, in Christian virtue and in understanding all the things that God has chosen to reveal to his people. So I would ask you, as you go home this morning, to consider where do I need to Embrace personal sacrifice in order that the unity of Covenant Church might be increased. Where do I need to deny myself? Take up the cross of Christ for the sake of my fellow believers. This is not a theoretical question. It, it will come into play. As soon as the service ends, you turn to the person next to you. Maybe you walk out into the foyer. Do you want to love the church? Do you want to be like our friend Jim from earlier in my sermon who rejoiced in having a people of his own. We're not much to look at. We're a bunch of sinners, from the leaders to the babies. We're going to hurt each other and fail each other sometimes. But Jesus says, we are worth loving. We are his beloved. So here are two ways to love your church like the believers in Acts 15. First, recognize the importance of church government. We need to protect the truth and our unity. So make sure you choose leaders carefully, hold them accountable to the qualifications of Scripture, and submit to them when they lead you. And secondly, commit to personal sacrifice. There's an opportunity coming for you 
sometime, maybe today, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and these Gentile believers. Notice verse 31. What do they do when they get the letter? They rejoice. They rejoice when they get this letter. They're being asked to limit their freedoms. And they rejoice to do it. Because the gospel had been protected and they're given an opportunity to serve their Jewish brothers and sisters. It was not a yoke. It was not a burden. It was a chance to love. May we be as ready to rejoice at opportunities to serve one another. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we praise you for the example of your church in history and given to us in your word. We thank you for this example of how they, Lord, fought hard, sweated, traveled to protect the truth of the gospel, that we are saved only through grace, Lord, when we trust in Christ, Lord, and, Lord, their desire to protect their unity. So much so that they were willing to ask the brothers and sisters in the Lord to sacrifice personal freedoms so they might eat and drink together with their fellow believers. Lord, we pray that you would give us the love of Christ for one another, that we might also be willing to sacrifice our personal freedoms to know, Lord, to be wise with our words, to be gentle, and to grow together, that we might be a light, a witness to the world and to all who come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. I will sing a final hymn together, May the Mind of Christ Our Savior. I don't actually remember. 644. 644, if you want to use the Trinity, please stand. Let's sing this one together.
after the benediction, there's just a brief uh, minute for ministry from the Women's Ministry Committee. So if you can take your seats and just listen. I know it won't be long. Uh, they have a brief announcement. Uh, but now, uh, receive the Lord's blessing on your heads. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please be seated.